So we're going to continue with our series called Encounter. We're looking at nine different encounters in the Gospel of Luke that people have had with Jesus Christ. And this is the seventh one. Um, Our kids are following the same series as well in an age-appropriate way. So for you parents of 3 to 11s, you can be uh, following along with your children. I hope that's serving you and serving them well. And it's great to have our our youth, our Ignite, in with us, learning with us in here. I've really enjoyed this series so far. I hope you have. Just speaking personally, I found that I've been encountering Jesus, like afresh, really for who he is and what he's like, and just getting that sense of just what an extraordinary person, what an extraordinary God that we have. And my prayer each morning really is that all of us, whether for the first time or for a fresh time, would encounter Jesus in these moments in worship and in in preaching. And that's what I believe is going to happen this morning as we open God's word, which is Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 30. We've leapt forward a little bit in Luke, and uh, Jesus Christ really now is just approaching the last few days and weeks of his life by Luke 18. He's approaching Jerusalem, and we join him, as it were, in verse 18 of chapter 18, and I'm going to read that to you. And a ruler asked him, asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, well, all these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is none, no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. So who is this man who encounters Jesus in quite a profound conversation, I think? Well, we know, first of all, that he's young because Matthew tells the same account in his gospel, and Matthew tells us that he's a young man. And Luke is telling us clearly that he is also a man of wealth, a man of authority, and a man of moral standing. So I guess in contemporary terms, he is a young man who's got it all together. He's a young man who's got degrees from all the right places. He's kind of set to make partner or become CEO or float his startup on the stock market in record time. He was the head boy at school, He's got a pretty spotless uh, record. There's nothing on him. He's kind of that kind of guy, as it were. Now, as as a Jewish man in the first century, this question about eternal life reveals something important about his context and his culture. He would have been asking not... um, I'll rephrase that. When it comes to the question of eternal life, he's he's not saying, where's this ethereal place in the clouds, heaven, that I could get to? From his context and his culture, he's asking about the kingdom of God on earth. That's what he's referring to as a Jewish man in the first century. He wants to know about the age to come. 
which is the phrase that Jesus uses himself at the end of the passage. He's talking about the age when God will put everything right. The age when there'd be no more corruption, no more decay, no more evil. A place, a time when God would live with his people here on this earth in unity and perfection and harmony. And basically he's saying, am I good enough to live there? Or to put it a different way, he's saying, uh, am I doing all that I need to do to be able to make it when God does that here on earth? Okay, that's what he's asking. So in some senses, he kind of, I think, is experiencing a bit of a lack. He's sensing a slight lack in himself, even though he has so much, and he's achieved so much, and he's so impressive in so many ways. It's kind of like he's saying to Jesus, I'm, I'm still missing something. So, you know, can you tell me what to do? Because I'm, I'm willing to make some changes to my life here. Just tell me what I need to do. And Jesus engages with that question. He engages with those profound questions. That worldview, he engages with it. And I think he does so in three ways. By opening a door, by then exposing a rival, and by issuing an invitation. Jesus opens a door, exposes a rival, and issues an invitation. Number one, he opens a door. What do I mean by that? Well, I've I've got a friend um, called Andy. Some of you will know him. Now, Andy's got a bit of a gift. He's got the gift of kind of just opening the door to my heart. And what I mean by that is that when I'm in conversation with him, I just kind of find myself being particularly honest about dreams or about fears. I find myself opening up and he's able to help me understand and, and, and sort of discern what is at the core of what I'm believing about God and what I'm believing about people and what I'm believing about myself. It kind of opens your heart a little bit. And I think his gift kind of has three strands to it as I was pondering it this week. And it's this. He's able to ask good questions. He's able to listen well. And also, most importantly, perhaps less tangibly, he's kind of able to make you feel safe. And so as a result of those three things, I find myself just opening the door of my heart, as it were, and expressing that kind of honesty. And I guess all of us, we all need friends who are able to do that. And in a more profound way, that is what Jesus is doing with this wealthy young man. He's just opening the door to his heart. And I think he's doing that in kind of three stages. He's already done that to an extent before the young man's actually come to meet him. Something about Jesus has caused this young man to kind of begin to open his heart before he even gets there. Something about just maybe he's observed Jesus, he's heard of Jesus, he's watched him. Something about that means that he's started asking some pretty big life questions. I guess that's why he comes with this burning and pretty profound question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to live in God's kingdom on earth forever? Something already has just opened the door of his heart ajar. And then by the time he's in the conversation, Jesus just pushes the door a little bit more. And he does that by giving a pretty, I think, it seems like a pretty cryptic response to his question. The man's question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life in verse 18? And Jesus answers, why do you call me good? Doesn't seem to quite kind of flow from one to the other, does it? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And Jesus, as ever, is doing this very deliberately. He often asks questions very deliberately. What he's doing really is just gently questioning the man's worldview. He's just opening his door, heart ajar and just questioning the ground upon which this man stands. It's like he's saying, so you think people can be truly good because of the good stuff they do? You sure? 
And then Jesus does a third thing. Having welcomed him to him, having pushed the door a bit more, he then, as it were, pushes the door a bit more by then doing maybe what the young man would have expected him to do in the first place. So having slightly confused him, he then probably does more what the young man would have expected him to do. And Jesus lists a number of things that you need to do to inherit eternal life, to be part of the kingdom of God, which is probably what the young man was expecting more. And I think Jesus very deliberately, we'll see why in a moment, chooses five of the ten commandments. Ah, the young man thinks, I I think I'm on safe ground here. This I know. Religious activities, moral standing, this is, I'm I'm on safe ground here. No, no, No stealing, no cheating, no adultery. Check, check, check. All these I have kept from my youth, he says, probably relieved in verse 21. So at this point in the scene, the door to his heart is kind of open. He's, I'm guessing he's thinking, on the one hand, hmm, maybe, maybe I am doing everything right. Jesus just listed these five things you have to do, and I, I'm doing them, or, or not doing them if you're not supposed to do them. And yet he's probably thinking, well, not sure, because why did Jesus challenge my view of goodness? And, and also, why did he leave out five commandments? Because I know my commandments, and why did he leave out five? So, hmm... That's probably the place that he's at. His door to his heart is ajar. Now, Jesus can push it a bit further and can expose the rival that exists in the man's heart. Number two. Um, I don't know if you've, you know of a series on Netflix called Designated Survivor. I don't know if any of you are watching that. Um, it's become a bit of a favorite of mine. You can kind of work your way through it. And um, if you don't know the series, it's kind of based on this premise, which is that in, in America, in in real life, they actually have this thing where when the State of the Union happens, when both houses of Congress come together, because of the threat of a terrorist attack, they have a designated survivor from each party. So two people from Republicans and Democrats who have to go and sit in a secret location somewhere just in case um, there is an attack on both houses of Congress. Sure enough, the unthinkable happens in this series. And uh, there is an attack, the whole thing blows up, the president, the vice president, all the congressmen and women, all the senators, they all die. Leaving, of course, Keith Sutherland's character, uh, Tom Kirkman, to assume the presidency. He's kind of this unassuming, rather failing cabinet minister, and he's now suddenly the president, having been the designated survivor. However, there was also one other designated survivor, and her name uh, is Kimball Hookstratton, and she's the Republican designated survivor. But because the Democrats were in power, then Tom Kirkman becomes president. And initially, she seems like uh, she's really on his side. She comes across as very supportive, and Mr. President, I'm I'm just here to work with you. She seems to be all in favor of bipartisan cooperation. You know, whatever's going to help America, I'm just here for you, Mr. President. And he's very encouraged by that. But as the series kind of rolls on, you can tell I've watched a few of these, there's a... uh, there's a scene in the Oval Office, this scene in fact, and President Kirkman's just starting to suspect that maybe not all is as he thought. And he kind of challenges her on a couple of things that she's done, a couple of statements that she's made. And things get a little bit tense, and the director clearly wants us to get something because the music starts to change and the lighting fades and the camera zones in, and President Kirkman starts to say, hang on a minute, you told me you didn't want my job. And the music sort of pauses and she says, for now. And the director wants you to see something. He wants you to see that she's not actually a supportive ally. She's a rival. 
She's a rival for the Oval Office. She's a rival for his presidency. She's a rival for power. And the director makes it very, very clear, using all the techniques to tell you she's not a supportive ally. She's a rival. And Jesus, rather more subtly, perhaps, is like a director in this scene in Luke 18. He wants to show us something. He wants to show us that things actually are rather different under the surface than perhaps they appear. He's kind of shining a light on what is really going on. And he does that by issuing this pretty remarkable instruction to this man. By instructing the young man to give away all his money and his possessions to the poor, Jesus very gently but quite clearly exposes a rival that exists in the man's heart. That's why the young man becomes, Luke says, very sad in verse 23. And commentators suggest that actually that word very sad doesn't quite get to the depth of the meaning. They say it's better translated as grieved. And actually for this young man, the thought of giving up his money or of giving up what his money can get him is a, a grievous thing, a kind of like a crushing experience for him. And Jesus is doing this very gently, but very clearly and very deliberately. Did you notice what kind of commandments he selected in verse 20? Those five commandments that Jesus chose. Did you notice which kind of ones they were? They're all external ones. They're all behavior ones. He deliberately lets the young man think, oh, I'm doing pretty well. You know, no adultery, no stealing, no murder. Check, check, check. And now... Having just kind of opened his heart, if you, if you like, Jesus helps him come to a, a new realization. Because the commandments Jesus didn't include are basically the internal ones. The ones he included were the external behavior ones. The ones he doesn't include are the internal heart ones. For example, he doesn't include the 10th commandment about not coveting our neighbor's possessions. That's something that happens in here, isn't it? When we envy somebody else's life or possessions and he doesn't include the first commandment not worshipping any, anything else other than God and this young man would know his commandments he'd know his bible inside out and I think suddenly the young man realises there is a rival in my heart and now it's well and truly exposed Oh, I haven't, I haven't even kept the first commandment he realises Deep down, I think he realizes, deep down, I trust that money and possessions will bring me more security and satisfaction than God will. That's the moment I think he experiences in his heart. And Jesus knows what I think many of us know, which is that money so often is a rival to God. So often. It was in first century Judea, and it is in 21st century Kingston. You know, it's no coincidence that for every one time, Jesus warns us about building our lives on sex and relationships. He warns us 10 times about doing so on money. That can't be a coincidence. He knows that money has always been one of the strongest rivals to God. Not because it's a bad thing. Money's not a bad thing, not at all. It's, it can often be a great thing. It can achieve remarkable good and it's a necessity of life. But it does seem to have a unique ability to become a rival. And maybe that's less about what money actually is and more about what it offers to acquire for us. 
It offers us, doesn't it? Think about what money actually offers. It offers to bring to us pretty profound things like security, like approval and reputation, access to power. It has some pretty profound uh, offers. And one way of diagnosing whether uh, money has become a rival in our hearts is, in very simple terms, how do we feel about giving large amounts of it away? Because that's what Jesus does with this young man. That's the diagnostic tool he uses to expose the rival in his heart. Because when he makes that command, the young man is he's appalled at the prospect of giving it all away. He's grieved by it. What's more, I think there's a second, if you want to call it, diagnostic tool. And the second indicator, I think, is that money can also tell us what the other rivals might be. Put it like this, Matthew 6.21, Jesus very famously said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And uh, to explain this, Tim Keller, who's a church leader in New York, he, he puts it like this. Now, where I use the word rival, he kind of uses the word idol, referring to the second commandment in um, Exodus 20. I'll read it to you. Keller says this, Your money flows effortlessly towards your heart's greatest love. In fact, the mark of an idol, or rival, is that you spend too much money on it, and you must try to exercise self-control constantly. As St. Paul has written, if God and his grace is the thing in the world you love most, you'll give your money away to the church's ministry, to charity, and to the poor in astonishing amounts. He takes that from 2 Corinthians 8, 7-9. He goes on to say, for most of us, however, we tend to overspend on clothing, or on our children, or on status symbols such as homes and cars, and this can reveal our idols. In other words, he's saying, money itself may not be the idol or the rival, but what it can get you is. Not not just stuff, but much more deep than that. What it offers us, security, status, comfort, pleasure, power, is a helpful diagnostic tool in that sense. And then there's a a third way to expose the rivals to God in our hearts. And Archbishop William Temple puts it like this. He said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. In other words, he he meant, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to. I can't say that. It's what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there's nothing else demanding your attention. So, let's take this from the kind of uh, observing to actually applying it to ourselves and our own lives. Let me give you a couple of questions to think about to try and unpick some of these um, challenges. Question one, building on what Temple said. What is it that occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? So when you're awake at night or commuting in the car or daydreaming in a waiting room, where does your mind go? Now, one or two daydreams don't indicate idolatry or rivalry of the heart. That's not what I'm saying. But rather, it's about asking, what do I habitually think about in the privacy of my heart to get joy and comfort? Question two. Where does your money go? Question two. 
Now, of course, much of our money just goes to things that reflect the practical necessities of life. Rent and mortgage and, and children and so forth. But Jesus was right. Where our money, our treasure goes will point to what our heart loves the most. So if, if what your heart loves the most really is the glory of God as seen through the building of his local church or the loving and the blessing of those in need as a reflection of his compassion, if that's what's captured your heart the most, then your money will follow that. And I guess just with that in mind, just as a brief kind of sidebar really, with that kind of uh, theme in mind, can I just thank the many of you who give I'm going to often mention this in church, probably because we're a bit English, and we should talk about it more. Can I just thank those of you who give so generously and sacrificially and cheerfully to this local church? It is genuinely inspiring to see that for many people here and in this, in this church, Jesus, Jesus Christ has so gripped your heart that you want to invest the best of your resources into, the, into making his name famous. That is an inspiring thing to behold. Into providing a context where people can explore Jesus Christ, grow in Jesus Christ, be empowered by Jesus Christ. And the only reason we can do what we do in King's Church is because you give so willingly and generously your money. That's the kind of bottom line. I want to say to you guys, just I want you to know this. What you are doing is not for the day. It's not even for the morrow. It is for eternity. What you are giving into will resonate through eternity. When you give your finances, you're not just greasing the wheels and making it, allowing us to hire venues and, and, and pay staff and so on. You're investing in people's eternal futures and destinies. I want you to remember that, because sometimes giving often is costly and sacrificial, but it's not just a momentary thing. What you're investing the best of your resources in affects people's eternal future. I can't think of a better thing to give your resources into. And if that's not where you're at, maybe you you don't currently give into King's Church, or you do, but if you're honest, it's kind of, you do so out of obligation, it's it's a duty, it's kind of what, what we're supposed to do, Philip, you mentioned this bit when I became a member, so I'm just sort of doing it. If that's, if that's where you're at, maybe there's no joy in it. That's, I think that's a good clue. If there's no joy in your giving, because there's supposed to be, that's the radical message of the Bible. There's supposed to be joy and satisfaction and bountiful blessings when you give God's resources back into his kingdom. So if you're not knowing joy in that, that's a clue. It's a clue into what's happening in the heart. And that's what Jesus is interested in. He's interested in opening the door of our heart ajar and seeing what's there. Not to have him get us loads more stuff. It's the heart that he wants to um, get to. And I believe this morning, if there is an opportunity to have a heart change this morning, it's not just about being sent out here with some stuff to do. God's able to change hearts. Not just reveal them, but transform them. So, what are we saying? When you encounter Jesus... You have your heart opened. I think we've all experienced that in this series. He can also expose the rivals in your heart. And thirdly, he issues an invitation. The invitation of Jesus is to encounter him and let him change your heart. That's what he's interested in. He wants to affect hearts. He wants us to get to a place where we put our faith and trust in him. And that's our heart response. 
What Jesus is wanting, what he's inviting, is to make him the primary focus of our trust. Because, or one reason is, he knows that that is where true freedom is to be found. He knows that the abundant life that he claimed to be able to bring is found when he has the primary place in our hearts. And he also knows something else. I think deep down all of us would know. He knows that the rivals to him cannot bear the weight of our deepest desires, even though we might ask them to do so. You know, we've got human beings have deep, profound desires, like to be accepted and to be safe and to be secure and to be approved of and to, to matter. And Jesus knows that if you put those deep desires onto the rivals, you will crush them with that weight because they're not designed to bear it. You know, your career, your physical health and your beauty, your possessions, your spouse, your children, they're not designed to bear the weight of those most profound of human desires. In fact, you will crush them with the weight of that kind of expectation. Or you'll be crushed when they fail you, as they will, if that's what they're there for, the primary place in your heart. Jesus knows that true freedom, something else the human heart yearns for, true freedom is to build your hopes and your desires on a rock that will stand. It's it's like this. True freedom is to have all your heart's desires reordered. He's not about just getting rid of all the desires of a heart. He's about reordering them. That's kind of what it feels like, I think, looks like for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God to overlap earth, is that the desires of our heart fall into their right place. There's a rhythm. They flow. They sit where they should with Jesus as primary. How do you get that? How do you get that? How do you get that sense of heaven on earth, the desires of my heart in their right order? Well, the answer's always the same. Look at their real rich, young ruler in this story. Jesus Christ is about 32 at the time, probably. He's a young man. Jesus had lived in incomparable splendor and majesty and glory, the like of which the human language cannot begin to describe. Jesus Christ has lived, has been part of the love and the joy of the Trinity since eternity. He's existed in just indescribable harmony and beauty and self-giving love. You can barely find the word to describe the riches of what he's known. And he's left it all behind. He gave it all away. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, though Jesus Christ was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler. He's the true and better rich young ruler. He's the one who gave away the ultimate wealth to come and rescue you and give you and I the richest of inheritances. When you get that, when you keep getting that, when you keep reminding yourself of that, applying it to your heart, letting his generosity, his sacrifice melt your heart, when you get that, It will change your attitude to any of the rivals in your heart, not least the rival of money. I'll quote Tim Keller again. He says this, human status just becomes human status. 
approval becomes just approval. You can give money away or you can keep it, depending on what's the best thing at the time. The only way to counteract the power of money in your life is to see the ultimate rich young ruler who gave away everything to come after you, to rescue you, and to love you. I wonder if Jamie and the band could come and join me and help us to respond in these closing moments. As I was um, obviously studying, reflecting, praying on this passage this week, there was one thing in the passage that just kind of made me sad. And it wasn't so much that the young man was sad or was grieved. I think what saddened me was that when faced with this beautiful encounter with Jesus where, where his heart is just gently opened and this rival is exposed, he walked away. That's what really saddened me. I think, oh, why, why didn't he say something like, Jesus, that, that's really hard. My Jesus, money and possessions, that's a pretty big deal for me. And you're asking for the lot? That's, that's hard. Can, can, can you help me with that? I don't know how to do that. He just left. He just left. So if, you know, King Church, if Jesus is challenging you this morning, I guess my challenge is, are, are you going to just turn away and say, sorry, can't touch that? <laughs> Or are you going to engage with him this morning? Because if we've seen nothing else in this series, we've seen that he can be trusted. He can be trusted. This is the man that we heard about last week who just when faced with a dead little girl, just reaches his hand into death and just plucks her from death to life by saying, sweetheart, it's time to get up. Death defeated. You can trust him. Jesus doesn't just expose the rival in our heart and leave us there. It's not what he's like. He invites us to encounter him, to engage with him, to be changed by him, to know him as primary, the primary place in our hearts. So if you, t- if you take a step this morning, whether it's a step to receive prayer from the prayer team or as we're singing in a moment or to chat to people afterwards, if you take a step this morning, I want to say you can expect God to begin heart change. That's what he's here to do this morning. He can do that. He can change heart. He can reorder our desires so they kind of fall where they should in order. It's like heaven on earth. And what I want you to know, he can meet those healthy desires. He's not only here to reorder them and to make himself primary. He's a good God who gives good gifts, who loves to bless and intervene and change. So where there are good desires to to be married or desires for our children or desires for change in the workplace or for health, he can meet those desires as well. He's here for both this morning. So let me pray, and I'll just leave a few moments of quiet for you to pray as you wish. And if the words I use are helpful, then you can pray those as well. In terms of receiving prayer, as Paul indicated, we're going to close a little bit earlier than normal this morning after we've sung together. But there'll be a prayer team, as always. They're going to be just in a discreet place uh, in the cafe space. It is relatively discreet, and they would love to chat and pray as things have been raised this morning. So let me start us off in that by praying, and I'll leave some space for you to also pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that time and time and time again we've seen in this series and in our own experiences that you are just able to unlock our hearts and just open the door and show us what's there. And sometimes that can sting a little bit. 
But we know, Jesus, you're only doing it to invite us, to issue an invitation, to draw us to know you better. And so we pray, where would you help us know if there are rivals to you in our hearts? Would you help us to confess them? And would you come in a beautiful way and reorder those desires so that you are primary and that we know the freedom and the heaven on earth that comes as a result.